Welcome to Technically Speaking with Borgia and Wincy, a podcast about the evolving conversations in tech. Technology is facilitating our relationships and interactions more than it has ever done before. But does it bring us together or drive us apart? Technology is now used as a, not necessarily just a tool, but a crutch for many of us to interact with others in a day-to-day life. We used to talk to our neighbors, go knock on their door. Then we moved from there to phoning each other. When that finished, we started texting. (laughs) We have been accelerated into a world where we're seeing more and more people on screens instead of face-to-face. Now, this has an implication for how this sets up society for the future. Today, what we want to explore is, has technology actually gotten in the way of us talking to each other, seeing each other? And I guess the question is, what's the value in seeing each other and talking to each other? In the old days, you would know if there was something wrong with your neighbor when you, you know, went over there, asked for a cup of sugar and, you know, you could see their face, you could see their demeanor, their body language, and you'd instinctively know whether something was up or not. But nowadays, it's not like you can read the tone in a WhatsApp conversation if someone's actually not very happy. And and what would you do if your phone was taken away from you? How did we get like this? I moved into my uh, current place of residence not too long ago. Though I know I have neighbors, I haven't actually got over to knock on their door once, actually. We, we have met each other in the hallway once in a while. And, and every time we do, we do have nice long chats. But um, it, it took probably about five months before I even had their number uh, to start a WhatsApp group, which we did. And now all things, we just literally text each other. Oh, your buzzer must not be working because all your deliveries seem to be buzzing my flat. To has the squirrel come into your kitchen and tried to eat your bread also? And then we've exchanged a few photos of squirrels in our kitchens and shared advice on that. And it's been fine, absolutely fine. But it's definite that our ability to communicate or build deeper relationships with those around us physically has reduced. And a lot of that might have to do with that new middleman that we've placed, which is a screen in front of those interactions. I do want to say that technology has presented lots of opportunities for a lot of people. And technology has done a lot to help society. Good example is that when I was doing a lot of work with female entrepreneurship across the UK, working with the government, I knew that women were, all women teams were only getting 1% of the funding from venture capitalists in the UK. And it's terrible worldwide. One of the major reasons for that is because a lot of venture capitalists prefer to see portfolio companies in person. They also ask for the people to pitch uh, for their money. And there's been loads and loads of research now that's been done to say that whether the venture capitalist is a male or a female, when they ask questions, if the person pitching is male, 
They will ask more future-thinking, positive, proactive questions, and they will ask the females more negative-type questions. Um, and, and to talk about, well, how are you going to deal with your business thinking, for example, rather than focusing on how are you going to build your business to become triple its net worth at the moment. So, so, so those are well-researched uh, topics. And what I found really interesting is during this year of virtualization, you can almost call it, uh, as we are stuck not being able to do things face-to-face, there was a investment team up in the north of the UK who found that traditionally women would barely make it through the first round of investment. But during these virtual pitching sessions that they started having, all of a sudden, almost 30% of the deals that were going to the next stage were women. And this was unheard of in this market. And what's been really interesting is all the physical cues that might have triggered our original biases um, in terms of asking questions, those sort of fell away. Um, there's something about not being in a room, physical room next to each other that removes a lot of power cues almost and has democratized the ability for people to uh, speak on behalf of themselves. I, I know, for example, personally, that there are lots of, you would call tricks in a book when you're dealing in a lot of influencing type situations. For example, where you sit in the room makes a huge impact on the results of a meeting. One of the tips and tricks that is known in the professional circuits in any meeting room, if you sit next to who is perceived to have the most power in that room, you almost get to take on some of their aura of power and you get associated with them very subconsciously. And that gives you a better voice at the table. Yeah. So it's almost as though when you shed the the political element from that situation, then, you know, the ability of someone to socialize with their colleagues is it just comes to the forefront, right? Then the true character, the, the strength of your character Absolutely. can actually shine. And I think that's what it's helped to do. So what what it's done is that um, maybe it's disadvantaged some of the men who pitch, who normally get more funding, but it certainly helped to even the playing ground. And I do see other um, aspects where female entrepreneurs are now being able to use the virtual environment to their advantage because of exactly this principle. One of the things that communication is super important in is education. And at a conference recently, I was listening to Sal Khan, the founder of Khan Academy, which is an online learning platform. He made a really good point that the only way to know if a child is actually internalizing what they're learning and is keeping up pace with the curriculum is to talk to them. That can be done by a teacher in the classroom. It can even be done in peer-to-peer -peer learning. But I think the most important thing here is that socializing can also help to crystallize, you know, if the child is struggling, if they're falling behind in something, because these things add up. And if they keep falling behind year after year after year, then, you know, they're not going to be able to catch up.
That's not to say that there isn't a lot of value in online learning, obviously, and there's a lot of situations where it's the only way people can get access to education, especially in the Middle East or Africa. You know, if you can't travel to your schools, how are you going to be taught? So it's definitely a useful tool, but it's not everything. So to talk about today's subjects and to share lots of examples of where this is happening in society today, I would love to introduce Pete Trainer, who is um, CEO of Vela Health, a telemedicine company, also has worked in human-centered design for a very long time, has even written a book on the subject called Hippo. Please get it if you haven't. And also a TEDx speaker who speaks quite widely on this subject. So we've been talking about how digital technology has enabled access for a lot of people. With a digital GP service, this is something people always think of as an in-person experience. Um, people would have to go to a doctor's office for a diagnosis. How have you found the new digital experience? Is it as good or even better? Various services have been sort of digitized gradually over the last decade or so. And now we're going through a bit of a kind of health tech revolution and evolution in terms of digitizing primary care and, and doctor's appointments. I mean, statistically, we say there's about 70% of things that you would normally have to go down to see your GP on the on the street for that you can do online. I mean, there are always going to be a whole bunch of things that you can't do online. Anything that's kind of involves a physical examination, obviously, is, is out of the question. But most things can be dealt with, 70% of things can be dealt with with remote diagnosis. And that's really cool, actually. The reason that telemedicine, we call it, has really rocketed over the last few years in the UK. I mean, it's been big in America for a while, is, is really because people were struggling to get appointments I, th I think over the last three or four months this year, you know, we've really seen telemedicine's 2008 banking moment. We've had its it's had its injection in the arm and its its need, its necessity has really become apparent to everybody because we weren't allowed to go down to the bricks and mortar clinic on the street. So we're not going to go backwards from that. I think more people are going to be doing remote medicine, remote doctor's appointments than, than you know, would, would sort of previous to this this pandemic area. What about doorknob questions, like um, things that, you know, you would uh, call someone up for because you've decided, OK, I need help with this problem. But then there could be another underlying issue that you don't bring up right until the end if you feel comfortable enough with the person that you're talking to. How do you or can you do you feel that you are effective at um, enabling that kind of interaction with with your clients? Actually, one of the things that, that Valor has done is all of our sessions, when you book one, are half an hour. So you get half an hour with our doctors. When you go down to the traditional uh, GP on, on the street, because of the volumes that they have to deal with, you really get 10 to 15 minutes, if that, and you're in and out and you're dealing with one thing. We're, we're trying to encourage people to speak about many things that might affect them or you know multiple issues. And actually, because it's easy to get an appointment because you're just booking online and you can see somebody usually within an hour to come back regularly, which again, I think people lost over the last few decades. They stopped wanting to go down to their doctors because it was a bit of a hassle. So we're trying to 
create those relationships again and, and, and allow people to have a relationship with their health and their doctor so that they do feel comfortable talking about multiple things or they do feel comfortable sending an email or, or a message to the doctor after the session to say, oh, by the way, I forgot this, but I should have mentioned this and then having a doctor reply to them digitally as well. So I think digital is actually going to give us the ability to build those longer term relationships and those longer conversations uh, again, uh, which is something that certainly we used to have that, that were kind of taken away, I think, by efficiency. Have you heard from the clinicians that you're managing that they've had to change how they operate now? Are they freer or do they feel that they can bring the human element back in where it was perhaps lacking previously? Yeah, definitely. They love it. They think it's great. Um, everybody that goes into an industry related to, to healthcare, medicine, do it because they care deeply about people. Our doctors, our GPs and our, our physicians and clinicians and physiotherapists and counsellors and all the amazing people that work with us, you know, really do feel like they're getting time back to do, you know, to focus on people's care. We're using tools with our clinicians, basic AI, natural language processing tools that help them to record the notes. You know, you know they're not sitting in there having to scribble sort of notes during a session they're looking at the notes briefly afterwards and it just gives them the ability to kind of build that bond and that relationship with the patient does the ai also tell them if they're being uh cold or warm or <laughs> no. engaging no no, no we, <laughs> i have uh, read about that i have read interactions being analyzed in that way has the data flagged up conditions that people haven't attended for initially? Yeah, I mean, it does happen. But again, we, we have professionals, they're licensed. They're the ones that make the decisions and the diagnosis. We support them with more data than perhaps they would get in a traditional clinical situation. We all generate a huge amount of data every single day. And so there are, there are many, many, many strands of data that, you know, with your permission, we can, we can look at and we can um, use as touch points. I think one of the, the greatest tools that we have at our disposal, one of the, you know, our natural language processing algorithms that we use every single day do look at words as they're mentioned multiple times or keywords. We might, you know, we might be flagging to the doctor, you know, casually on their interface that the word tiredness has been mentioned four times. And actually, you know, that can be something that we want to explore a little bit deeper it, they're casual keywords, really. It's nothing that we're trying to do that is, you know, oh, we think that this person is displaying symptoms of, you know, malaise because they've said this, this and this. It's more like repetition or certain words to do with food or diet. There are lots and lots of words that we, we look for. Repetition is the main one. And that's all in real time? Yep, absolutely. In real time, there's a layer that we've been developing between the patient and the, the clinician that's there to kind of help uh, both patient and doctor analyze exactly what's going on during the sessions. Uh, it's all very transparent. You know, we were putting a layer in to take notes and, and records uh, from the sessions to do extra di extra analysis on those notes and records just seems it would be remiss of us not to try and use that for more than just the notes that we give back to the patient. And I think you had spent some time, for example, with your parents. Do you, you want to tell us a little bit about how they have felt in this current digital world so i've been doing this for 25 years now um working in design digital technology and data um and one of the things that's always fascinated me throughout uh, my entire career are sort of innovations that occur at the fringes you know a really good set of archetypes to study when you're creating something digitally are you know young kids 
who adopt things very, very quickly and take it for granted and, and pick things up really quickly. And then you've got people like my parents, who I've just spent, you know, four glorious days with, who are in their sort of mid to late 70s and, and really struggle with the concept of digitization. Like it's really not helped them at all. It's made them feel quite isolated. It's made them feel quite anxious um, that they're, you know, missing out on things. And sometimes I think we use terms like FOMO almost in a kind of meme type way, you know, oh, like I'm missing out on something on Instagram. Actually, my parents and my dad especially has a kind of FOMO of not being able to see his telephone bill uh, via a piece of paper anymore because he's got to log on to this app that he never remembers the password for. And, you know, he's consciously anxious about something that's going on that he's not aware of because he's just not digitally savvy and, and he's probably in his eyes too long in the tooth to adopt this new type of, of sort of way of living. And so I, you know, I've, I've always been fascinated by, by kids and, and, and older people. And my dear parents, I, I do worry about in a world that's digitizing at such an extreme and rapid rate because they are being left behind and they are, you know, losing contact in some ways and not having perhaps some of the things that they do need. Like the concept of speaking to a doctor via a screen is so terrifying to my parents. And even if I showed them and I've tried, say it's this easy, they would rather wait for a week to get an appointment, at which point at their age, that's very bad, than you can see someone in the next 45 minutes because the anxiety levels of what that means and it's not the way we've always done things is, is very sort of ingrained in their life. So I do think we have to be really careful that we don't assume that everybody can adopt and digitise in the way that you know digital transformation kind of insists that they do. And it does leave large groups of society behind, the elderly, the kind of um, vulnerable um, and we we have to we have to factor those people those fringe groups into every single decision we, we make, um, and I don't think we do that sometimes to their detriment. What's your advice in terms of trying to, when you're creating digital experiences, that you need to be conscious of the guys in the margins or, or those who may or may not be excluded? Do you have any advice for those who are building these kinds of experiences or who are forming them, in terms of how they can bring more humanity back into it? Obviously, studying those people, getting those people into your research groups is, is key. Don't get digital natives and adopters and, you know, tech savvy people in your research groups. That's a terrible group of people to, you know, ask opinions from because they can do everything as a second nature. Get the people that are, you know, right out there at the fringes, the, you know, the disabled, the vulnerable, you know, the elderly, the, the very young. And so it's not all it's not all negative. A really great example of a piece of technology I put in my parents' home. Uh, in the last 18 months, which was digitally transformative for them in a good way, was we we were trying to work out how we could see them more. Um, the grandkids could kind of have more conversations with them. Uh, so we put an Alexa show in the corner of their room, right? So here's a device that you, you just say, Alexa, call grandma, or, you know, grandma can go, you know, Alexa, call the grandkids and then boom they pop up on the screen and you just have a chat those voice interfaces where there is like almost no barrier to adoption and the ones with the screens are even better because they can see there's something tangible there as well phenomenal and they picked that up and they adopted that they didn't really have to learn anything of course there was the paranoid about you know the woman in the box in the corner that's listening to us <laughs> like all of those strange kind of quirks um but once they got overcame some of those kind of fears they realized that actually here's a piece of technology that now means you know they're speaking to us uh, and the grandkids probably more regularly the minute i can build a skill for valor so that my parents can go you know hey alexa book me an appointment with the doctor and they 
pick a number on a calendar and then the doctor pops up on an Alexa screen. Those kind of things for people like my parents will be transformative. At the moment, what we've done is we're in that period of time in digital where it's all apps and screens and interfaces and buttons and clicks and swipes. And we need to focus much more on what makes people tick rather than what makes them click. And I think, you know, even that as a statement in itself is something that all teams should be considering before they just bang another button on a screen and assume that everyone's going to be able to log on and use it. Or the other the other one that really made me laugh, actually, this week when I was hanging out with my dad, as he said, I was mm-hmm. on a form on a website the other day and I thought, here we go. This is unusual for my dad. And he said, I didn't even get to the end of the form because it asked me if I was a robot. He got to the capture at the end of the form and the question was, are you a robot? And he just shut down the browser. Because the 75-year-old man looked at the question, are you a robot, when, no, I'm not a robot. And, like, he assumed that you had to be a robot in order to progress. Like, oh. literally, that was his mindset. <laughs> not Because it, it was a question. Are you a robot? And he did not, he didn't even submit whatever important piece of HMRC documentation that was due at the time because of the capture at the end of the form are you a robot? Like even the language of that, which idiot came up with the language, are you a robot? And put it in front of a 75 year old man. So do you think teaching him about this is important? Or do you think removing stupidities like that is important? Oh, let's remove stupidity. I mean, let's, let's not train people to, you know, accept stupidity. That's something we should never do. No, there's a lot of bad design out there. There is definitely a lot of bad design. There's a lot of things that we sprinkled into society that, you know, just are not good design patterns and design things but yeah i mean certainly there's there's plenty of examples of 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 things that when actually when you sit back and you look at it and you think like yeah that was weird like why why would my 75 year old dad a accept the fact that he might be a robot and b if he had clicked on that probably have to pick the palm trees or click on the cars like he just he, he can't process what it means and so we we just have to start designing things a little bit cleverer i think did you explain it to him i did was he on board no, I mean, it doesn't mean he's going to go and do it again, because I think also a lot of um, people, especially people who are sort of old enough uh, to have lived through various things, you know, you get one chance with these people and brands need to accept the fact that, you know, you are on a one chance only deal with quite a lot of these people. They need us. We don't need them, right? 100%. I mean, bless him. He's a character for sure, but he's also not unique. Uh, and I can, I, can, I can assure you that he's not some sort of slightly quirky 78-year-old man. He is representative of a group of people that we have taken for granted as, you know, adopters of, of digitization if we do it in such a way. No, they won't do it. I think my uh, 81-year-old father has decided to approach all of these issues by just letting me pay all his bills. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) You have this fascinating story, I think, over the last few years where you have been working or you were working with um, a wonderful person called James. Would you mind telling everyone about the project and the friendship and all of that? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm really happy to tell you about that. So uh, I met James, a guy called James Dunn, a good few years ago now. Um, I was helping some designers on a TV show called Big Life Fix, and they were looking at ways to use technology, data, um, engineering to give people 
with a, a life limiting condition, um, kind of a bit of a boost, a bit of a leg up, some way of, of kind of bridging some of the gaps that perhaps society had, had created for them. And I met this guy called James Dunn. James Dunn um, was an incredible man. He was 22 when I met him and he had a condition called Epidermabilisis bullosa, uh, EB. And it basically meant he was born without the collagen in his skin. And so his skin would uh, peel off and uh, scar with friction uh, and really just peel off his body. I mean, a a horrific, debilitating uh, genetic condition. Um, He'd spend sort of four or five hours, sometimes more, being bandaged every day uh, just so he could go out and and kind of, you know, spend time outside and and do some of the stuff that he loved. Um, I mean, really quite a a horrific condition. set of cards to be dealt in life however uh, i met this guy who was full of life and philosophical he was really really fascinated in how technology would give him opportunities to do things that you know his 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 physical ability kind of limited him um, to be able to do we struck up a, a really deep friendship and then worked on a few projects together looking at how we could use data ai robotics um even you know things like sort of putting Alexa devices all over his house that he could switch the lights on and off. It's very, very simple things like that were absolutely like groundbreaking for him in terms of, you know, the fact that he was able to do a lot more using just his voice. One of the things that I remember you talked about is actually taking some information and thought processes from him yep. and actually wiring it, so to speak, or, or digitally wiring it into an artificial intelligence and even... yes. To a certain extent, a, a little robot. Uh, sort of 18 months into our, our um, various collaborations and looking at how we could sort of support James and, and he could support us with things that we were learning, we realised that actually here was somebody with a huge amount of knowledge in their head and unfortunately not many years left. And that was the sort of harsh reality of the situation. We were sort of looking at somebody whose clock was ticking quite quickly. He knew that as well. His, his parents knew that. We worked... Um, you know, with his parents as well, um, uh, who are amazing, amazing people. And so we we decided what we would do is we would try and archive as much of James's wisdom as possible. So we built um, very basic uh, natural language processing um, device that we put in his home. Um, it started to collect, sort and archive his thoughts and memories. Um, we were spilling sort of questions at him every couple of days to try and stimulate him to talk, almost diarise everything that was going on. And over the course of about six months, we collected, uh, you know, a a large quantity of what was going on in in this young man's head Um, as a sort of experiment that he was obviously, you know, privy in part to and and fully on board with. Then one day, you know, he sort of said, well, what are we going to do with this thing? What are we going to do with this time capsule, this, this archive of all my memories? And one of the ideas was that we would put it online so that other people with the condition EB, young people who were growing up with the condition EB, could talk to James, quote unquote talk, um, the virtual version of James, really understand how he coped with it. That sort of uh, decision to do that led us to speak at a conference together about our plan. At that conference, we met uh, a really amazing robotics company called Bots and Us. And Bots and Us had this autonomous robot called Bo. It's a beautiful, beautiful uh, piece of robotics. And it's for banking halls and shop floors and shopping centers and, and office receptions and things like that. Um, it's like a meet and greet machine. And James said, wouldn't it be brilliant if we could put, you know, the knowledge 
that we've collected for me inside the hood of this thing um send it out so that people could sort of learn a little bit about me or we could you know pipe it down into a version of the robot in america so that james's corpus of knowledge could travel to different countries and things like that um actually there are lots of things that are being created at the moment that perhaps might be missing their opportunity or it might be that they were created for one purpose and actually they have a very different purpose potential a very different potential that could be you know incredible for society so yeah we covered a lot with james from robotics to nlp to sort of knowledge systems and um yeah real privilege an absolute privilege that's wonderful that's a such a such a great story about that journey that you've had um pete probably just a, a final question I, I guess to kind of close up um this discussion and so probably coming back to what Bourjou was saying, so what do you think is our digital experiences, technology, et cetera, do they provide a surrogate for society? I don't know if I can answer that question sincerely because I think we're, we're at this point where we're trying to work out what it means. And actually, I think what's happened in the last six months, if you'd asked me a year ago, I may have been much more like on point, boom, there's my answer. You know, yes, would have been my answer. But I think everything that's happened in the last six months um, in the world and everything that's happening in the world right now has really brought back into stark focus, you know, what it means to be human and what it means to be, you know, fragile and what it means to be um, sort of fallible and how precious everything is. So I think, you know, we may find that we come out of the other side of the next 18 months with a very different view of what technology and digitization means than, than perhaps the direction that we were going in and it might balance itself out it's my hope so we've just been through a, a wide variety of examples of where technology has been an enabler something that allows people to stay afloat in difficult times something that allows people in remote places to come together and stay connected to those around them. But but we've also seen how that's not necessarily enough. And there is no substitute for relationships. There's no substitute for building a society amongst ourselves. And that is arguably the most important thing to take away from all this. Technology has really changed how we interact with others and in in many other ways, uh, as we've heard today. However, it's not perfect. There are is a lot more to do. And where we need to get to is to start injecting a lot more humanity back into our lives. And also in the technology that we do build for the future as well. In the next episode of Technically Speaking, we're asking if AI is the best decision maker.